with the latest on the corporate front, all the market trends, expert opinion, and sound business advice. It is your unique window into the business world, direct from the heart of China. Hello and welcome to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Coming up, we will have half an hour of business news and analysis. In today's show, we'll talk about one year after the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership or RCEP came into effect. What benefits does this bring to the member states? And German official says EU should monitor Twitter for its anti-competitive behavior. And now let's begin with our top story. It has been one year since the Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership, or RCEP, came into effect. It is the world's largest free trade agreement among Asia-Pacific nations. It covers 30% of the world's population and accounts for roughly 30% of the global economic output. China's Commerce Ministry says in the first 11 months of 2022, imports and exports with other RCEP members reached 11.8 trillion yuan, or nearly 1.7. 7 trillion US dollars, and that is up nearly 8% year on year. China's exports alone to the rest of ASEP members increased by nearly 18% year on year. So for more on this, join us on the line now are Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, Andy Mark, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. So then, first of all, China is an important member of RCEP, and China's trade maintains steady growth in the year 2022, despite the external and internal pressures. So what role has RCEP played in ensuring the steady growth? Um, RCEP has broken new ground in coordinating the different rules of origin provisions in ASEAN's various free trade agreements. And in the past year, it was quite obvious that the trade relations between different member states have been strengthened despite the downward economic pressure. And we have seen increasing trade of goods and even services um, between major economies like China, Japan, Malaysia, and Indonesia. And we believe going forward, this will bring more trade and more uh, exchange between people and services between all the members. Mm-hmm. And I know, so according to Asian Development Bank, by the year 2030, RCEP will add 245 billion US dollars and 2.8 million jobs to the member economies. So could you explain to us specifically what benefits will RCEP bring to other members? Well, it's a little complicated because, you know, let's take, for example, Indonesia. They recognize that at the beginning, uh, they might have a swing into a trade deficit. But by the 2035 date, uh, 2030 date, they expect to be into a surplus. And this this has to do with how you uh, align these economies. Remember, this is, you know, the key here is regional. And what is happening is about 90 percent of the tariffs that are out there are going to disappear. Mm-hmm. Uh, in addition to that, all of these countries over the next few years will be aligning their policy. Think of it as kind of like the EU, but just for trade. Uh, they will allow uh, countries to go back and forth. And as those become more harmonized between the countries, it's um, going to help small, medium-sized uh, enterprises. Uh, right now, uh, because of some of the complexity and things like that, it, it tends to help larger um, uh, companies. But in the future, it really is going to be a powerhouse, which is already shown uh, through all the statistics out there. Uh, It's becoming the the main regional area for 
uh, China. And it's expected to, uh, I would expect it to start expanding once it becomes uh, even more successful. Obviously, it was disappointing that uh, India did not join in, uh, but it's possible they might, given the need to, you know, uh, restart their, not restart their economies, but in, continue to grow their economies, especially during these very difficult times. And we could be having uh, a rebuilding through 2023 and 2024. So uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. Mm. So Andy, so it is regional, but what do you think, what benefits will the RCEP bring to other members? Well, we heard some of the tangible benefits from our speakers already. Um, but I think it's very important to also recognize that RCEP uh, includes countries that are advanced economies uh, like Japan, South Korea, um, as well as uh, emerging countries like Indonesia that are more focused on natural resources, um, lower end manufacturing. And why this is very important is this allows uh, complementarities and gains from specialization. So RCEP, of course, reduces tariff and non-tariff barriers amongst its members. So what this means is that everyone gets to do better. Mm. I think it's also very important in this uh, age where there are voices calling for deglobalization and decoupling that we see such a large and diverse set of countries able to work together for the common good. So, Aina, so how will it help member states to address economic cooperation and develop the capacity to increase the resilience in the Asia-Pacific region? Well, I mean, as Andy was saying, I mean, there's a complementarity that can happen. Um, I mean, one, one of the issues that comes up is, will will this RCEP uh, enable uh, companies uh, to basically spread their risk? Because obviously, they're facing a lot of political headwinds with the pressures from the United States. Um, and a lot of them want to, you know, diversify their uh, supply chain origins so that they don't have it in China uh, if they're in the U.S. And they can, in the U.S., I mean, if they're going to the Chinese market, uh, they're also looking for the low cost provider. So, as I said, I always go back to that this is uh, what, where the EU started off in terms of being about trade. It's not about politics. Uh, they will continue to do that with seven years of negotiations. And then on top of that, um, you know, a lot of meetings and those meetings will continue. And it's how they put together all of these uh, different countries, different systems, um, different trade, things like that, to, to standardize them. Once those are standardized, you start to see the economies of scale as uh, goods and services can move more freely and with less cost by mm. increasing their com competitive mm. value. So then, so will RCEP or RCEP be expanded in the future to further promote the trade liberalization? Uh, we can anticipate a further integration in the region, and along this way, there will be more regulations and more negotiations between different parties. And we have seen that different member states have been setting regional content rules so that intermediate goods can be sourced from any of the 15 countries with ease. And that's very important 
Because when we look at uh, the currency fluctuations last year, it was very significant. With a region that can coordinate different policies between countries, that will determine how much profit the manufacturing industry can eventually make in the future. And that also determines how this region will do business with the rest of the world. So I can see a richer RCEP in the future with China, South Korea, and Japan all playing a bigger role in it.、Mm. And China's foreign trade has seen strong growth of 8.6 percent year on year in the first 11 months of last year, despite a lot of challenges. But、uh, Dan, how do you see the export and imports momentum for this year? And 2023 will be a very difficult year for all exporting economies, including China, including all those in Latin America and in Africa. And China is no exception for the global recession,、um, because Europe and America are still the two biggest and most important destinations for major consumer goods and industrial goods. So we have seen that、uh, the export has been decelerating、uh, across Asian countries. And throughout the year, probably this pace will pick up、uh, when it comes to the contraction in export. But as the domestic economy pick up pace, that means there will be more import to cater the domestic demand, and in turn, the trade surplus will decrease for China's economy, and that will pose additional pressure in the GDP growth.、Mm. And Ina, so ASEAN, EU, and the US are three major trading partners for China. But how do you see China's trade relations with them? Well, it, it, China. This is the interesting. China is the only complete market. So, if you start looking at Europe and America, they always talk about them in terms of consumption, but their ability to produce.、Uh, obviously, Europe is severely impacted by the situation in uh, Ukraine. Uh, the United States、um, is trying to onshore、uh, business, try to restart their things, but they can't be competitive because of the cost of doing business,、uh, creating factories in the U.S. is going to be. A multiple of what it would be in China. Now, China by expanding into、um, uh, these regional comprehensive、um, economic partnership, they're in essence doubling down on their advantages. It's going to be much easier and cheaper to produce、uh, in this in this kind of environment versus the U.S. and EU. And that you know, long term, we're talking about competition.、Mm-hmm. So、uh, China's markets and and production ability. Uh, coupled uh, with the, you know, 30% of the world's GDP, 30% of the world's、um, population,、uh, this is going to be a very, very formidable force, and it's a, you know, it's a tide that raises all ships. Mm. All right, and this is this was the important thing that was necessary in order to get this done. People had to think long term. They couldn't just say, "Look, is this going to get me elected next term?"、Mm. They had to say, "Look, this could be something very, very important. We have economic gains over the next five to ten years, and that's unusual. You just don't see that in、uh, many other countries. So, yeah, it's a very, very important、uh, area. It could usher in a, you know, more regionalization as Europe and America、uh, figure out that going it alone or just trying to enrich themselves is not going to、uh, keep them competitive.、Mm. So, Andy, so what role yeah, will China play in the global supply chains? Do you think? So I think the role that China will play in global supply chains is multi-dimensional. So first of all, of course, I think China serves as the cornerstone of RCEP as well as global 
growth because of the size of its market uh, and the growth rate of its market. So I think that's one uh, part it will play. Of course, as a supplier to a vast variety of goods, China, of course, has been known as the workshop of the world. And while other countries in the RCEP region in particular are gaining because of a labor cost advantage, I think China will continue to play a very important role in manufacturing, especially more advanced manufacturing as time goes on. Uh, but the growth areas, I think, are in services. Uh, China is increasingly becoming an important regional and global player in services. And lastly, in investment. So one of the exciting things for me about RCEP is its ability to equalize uh, economic development in the region. So of course, Japan and South Korea are very, very advanced economies. But we see countries like Indonesia that historically have relied on the export of uh, natural resources and agricultural products, now taking policy steps to attract investment so they can uh, perform more value add to their natural resources. And this also, I think, is a role that China will play in providing expertise uh, through services and investment capital for mm. these countries as well. So, Aina, so will we see global supply chains decoupling from China? Should China be wary of some manufacturing companies moving their operations out of the countries, you know, such as Apple? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, there's a concern that political considerations are being are pushing uh, a lot of these um, these issues, the, the decoupling. But in the end, it's always about competition. I mean, you, you, if if China and ASEAN are producing at a less cost and Europe and America are insisting that their people buy higher cost, uh, it's a differential in the standard of living. In essence, uh, it's costing you more, it's inflation, um, and it, it's not sustainable over the long term. So Ch China and ASEAN are looking for a low cost uh, production. Uh, connected to a very large market. And that's going to be very, very difficult over the long term. <clears throat> Obviously, short term, yes, you can do things politically. You can vilify China. You can uh, poo-poo these economic, uh, uh, regional economic partnerships. You can try to press your own advantage, as the United States is doing, by you know saying, oh, everything has to be bilateral so that we can use our superior um, you know, uh, economic and political posture to um, you know force things on other countries. But you know, as I said, not sustainable. The mm -hmm. world has changed; it's multilateral, and uh, either the United States changes or it's going to suffer. Mm. So, Andy, so how has the recent adjustment of COVID policies impacted decision-making of foreign companies who are investing in China? It seems that we're living in parallel realities here when it comes to uh, this new phase of COVID management in China. So if you believe Western media, it's a dystopian, cataclysmic situation uh, uh, where you know these ghoulish accounts of China uh, cratering, uh, whereas if you're actually here on the ground, whether you're in Beijing, Shanghai, other parts of China, what you can see 
is that yes, many people have been infected, um, but also the vast majority uh, really had very mild cold-like symptoms. And the economic impact of that is that uh, the rebound has been very, very quick. Um, we see this especially in the consumer-facing side of the economy. Um, Chinese manufacturing, I think, will take a little bit longer to come back. Um, but certainly, I think 2023 uh, looks to be a very promising year economically for China. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a result, it will contribute to global growth as well. Mm-hmm. So, Dan, so China's service sector actually experienced some difficulties last year. But will the recent adjustment of the uh, COVID policy help it in a faster recovery of the sector this year? And the services sector took the biggest hit in 2022, and the majority of the sector was dominated by smaller businesses and private business owners. Uh, this year, it would be a much better year for them, but not in the beginning. Uh, as we can see it, the pandemic is spreading uh, to its peak in many regions in China. And in this process, there would be a wide loss of productivity, Uh, and discontinuation of production in a lot of the factories. And consumer uh, demand has been increasing for sure, but the recovery has been quite fluctuating. And this has shown how difficult it is when we reverse certain policies, um, because all parties in the economy have to adjust in their own way, and they cannot be synchronized in a very short period of time. So, Aina, what do you think are sectors with the greatest potential for improvement for China's economy this year? Well, obviously, the uh, certain areas of the tech sector are going to be uh, continue to be supported by the government as China seeks to replace uh, technology that it's been denied to it uh, by the United States. Also, the real estate sector looks a lot better. There's going to be some winners and losers, but it's very clear the uh, central government is moving to uh, finish off projects, uh, bring order back to the market. Um, very important there. I still think that you know China is the low-cost provider of intermediary goods. So while you may be making clothes in Bangladesh or India, uh, and remember these are necessities, uh, the cloth itself is made in China. Uh, and you have the same thing, uh, whether it's uh, medicines, vitamins, etc. China is the volume low-cost producer. And that becomes very important during an economic downturn because you can do without that new Gucci bag but you cannot uh, do without uh, basic food uh, and supplements, uh, clothing, you know, all of these areas, which you're, nobody is going to go out there and start a new factory producing, um, you know, shoes and things like this. This just isn't the time. So China will continue to benefit from its uh, position there. So um, it's kind of good sailing going forward. Uh, the real impact, though, for China is Uh, the rebound in consumption, uh, which is necessary for its dual uh, circulation strategy. Uh, It's the primary part that uh, then attracts even more FDI. Remember, this last year was a record. Um, And that that will complete the economy. Uh, The the question is, how do you do that? Um, I do believe and I agree with Andy that this is going to be a revenge spending year. Uh, People are going to be traveling. This is really good for the global south. Uh, because you know, to, in 2019, it was about um, 200 and, uh, 
um, $56 billion uh, was what uh, Chinese tourists uh, spent abroad. And if they do that, especially in the global south, that is huge. That could really, really spur a, a tremendous amount of um, development and ameliorate the, the lack of concern that has been shown by entities like the G7 and G20 uh, because they have not been able to come together. So uh, real world impacts uh, are what's going to help China drive uh, the uh, economy, not just in um, ASEAN, RCEP, uh, but globally. But I do think it's going to be more measured towards the uh, global south simply because, you know, some, a lot of Chinese don't feel welcome, as welcome in the United States and Europe. Mm -hmm. Well, we're speaking with Ina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute and Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, and also Andy Mark, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization. After a short break, we'll take a look at, uh, you know, the Twitter. What happened to this company? Stay with us. Welcome. I'm Ilaf Elard, economics professor and member of the Data Science and AI Center at New York University, Shanghai. On the World Today program, you can find in-depth and impartial insight, as well as critical commentary on key trends in the Chinese economy, financial technology, business and blockchain. To prepare for the world tomorrow, join me on World Today. You are listening to Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. A senior German official said Twitter should join other tech firms in being monitored directly by the European Commission. Sven Giergold from Germany's economy ministry said the company's behavior under Elon Musk posed a threat to free speech. He pointed to Twitter's abrupt suspension of journalist accounts and restrictions on access to certain links. Elon Musk has said last month he was to step down as Twitter's CEO. And so, first of all, uh, Aina, why did the German official call on the EU to launch an investigation on its anti-competitive behavior? Well, uh, you know, everything that's happened to Twitter lately is all about Elon Musk, and he has really uh, <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, if you start tracing, you know, the relatively short period, he said he wanted to buy Twitter, and then he wanted to back out, and then he was forced to buy it, and then he created chaos by firing people, then trying to rehire people. He said that he was uh, in favor um of you know free speech, but he kicked out journalists who said things that he didn't agree with or ha had what he perceived as attacks on him. Uh, obviously, this does not sit well with uh, the EU. Also, his um, you know he says he's going he's already opened up and reinstated the accounts of people who were spreading disinformation about COVID. Um, uh, you know, wild conspiracy theories, everything that we fear from the internet. So there, there's a lot of things that the EU are trying to digest. Um, and it's just really hard because Elon Musk is a moving target and you never know what he's going to do next. Mm -hmm. So then, so what does the mass layoffs and falling advertising sales mean for Twitter? Um, for Twitter, it has been long having the problem of generating long-term profits. And Elon Musk was thinking that if he could guarantee more of advertisement sources, then he could turn the situation around. But now, given what he has been doing, it just looks like he cannot control his impulse of randomly coming out of new rules that doesn't really go with the liberal values. 
So increasingly, as he behaves like this kind of technological um, oligarch, uh, it just looks like for Twitter itself, it is uh, not going to um, make a comeback anytime soon, and it's very likely to get into more problems in regulations. Mm. So Andy, so earlier, over 57% of Twitter users voted in an online poll for Elon Musk to step down as a Twitter CEO. So what explains the negative feedback from users? So I've been on Twitter since 2008 um, at Andy Mock, and I followed the company very, very closely mm. um, all of these years. I think that um, the fact that uh, Elon Musk could fire about half of Twitter's staff while the site can still continue running and, in fact, perform even better uh, from a technological perspective, I think really shows the uh, Musk derangement syndrome that seems to have infected much of the global elite. Um, and, and that Twitter is, I think, a vitally important platform. Uh, the global town square, I believe, is how Elon Musk uh, describes it. And, you know, if you really want debate on polarizing issues, I think you have to be prepared to be offended at least some of the time. Uh, and I, I think he's doing a good job. Mm. Um, you know, he's, uh, I think, uh, provocative. Um, that's maybe not necessarily a bad thing. Uh, he knows how to capture the spotlight. Uh, I think this poll that you asked me about is a great example of that. Um, and I think it is very clever in that he, of course, at some point is going to step down, and I believe after the poll. so. I think we have to see. So, so Dan, how do you describe Elon Musk? And is the role of social media becoming too powerful in today's society? Uh, I'm still a big fan of Elon Musk. Uh, he has been this visionary, like uh, Andy, uh, uh, like uh, Ina said. And in the past, he has done cool things. It doesn't matter if it's uh, uh, the rocket, SpaceX, Tesla, and even taking over Twitter. It just seems he's always at the right time for the right, uh, right pulse of that era. I have mixed feelings about him. And for Twitter, uh, also, it has entered this crucial stage. Because when we look at German politicians, they all, always have reservations about using Twitter as a way to advocating policies. Uh, like Angela Merkel, uh, she's always very skeptical. Uh, she thinks it, sh it should be the national state and governments that decides the limit of freedom of speech rather than private companies. Now, Elon Musk, uh, representing this private company, wants to define uh, what meaning is for the general public. I just think that's just basically wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, we're speaking with Wang Dan, Chief Economist of Hansen Bank China, Andy Mark, Senior Research Fellow at the Center for China and Globalization, and also Aina Tengen, Senior Fellow at the Taihe Institute. And that's all the time we have for this edition of Biz Today. I'm Zhao Yang in Beijing. Thank you so much for listening. Oh,